Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests usually discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. However, today we have a different treat in store for you. Yes, inspired by Dr. Barbara Golder. Golder? Golder, yes, like Goldfinger or Silver and Gold. She's a pathologist, lawyer, mystery writer, journal editor, inventor of room temperature fusion, and self-folding laundry. Well, (laughs) maybe not the last two. But anyway, she's a very interesting person. But before we get to talk to her about detective murder mystery fiction... Let's set the table for this guest interview. Yes. And so trying to figure out how we can get this interesting topic, because who doesn't love a good detective story? We wanted to figure out how does this relate to medicine? And there is a very good way. There's actually this book out written by this Swedish doctor-surgeon dude named Jorgen Nordenstrom from the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm called Evidence-Based Medicine in Sherlock Holmes' Footsteps. That is pretty good. And I learned something new about the author of Sherlock Holmes. What did you learn about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle? I, I was not aware that he was a physician. Yes, and his inspiration for Sherlock was? It was his mentor, right? Yes, Dr. Joseph Bell. And apparently, Bell would amaze his students by not only diagnosing what was wrong with a a patient, but he would sit back with his hands folded like we see in various renditions of Sherlock Holmes, strumming his fingers together and trying to figure out by observing him what his profession was, where he lived, and many other facts about him, and more often than not, being right. Yeah, that is incredible. And it it makes sense whenever you have such a classic character like Sherlock Holmes, you're drawing your inspiration from something. So imagine having that guy as your teacher in med school. (laughs) Uh, That would have been an ultimate blast. Now, evidence-based medicine points out to the fact that we have a profound amount of information at our fingertips, so much more data than we know what to do with. And in fact, in medicine especially, we're, we're uncertain what to do with all this data. And evidence-based medicine, or EBM, tries to put it into a usable format that can help a patient at their bedside or in the clinic. Because with so much information, I've, I've read places, and, and maybe you have too, Tom, that the sum of medical knowledge doubles maybe every two or three years. Oh, it's incredible. like that. But and only maybe 10% of that knowledge is useful, the studies that are performed. And which 10% is it? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and with great data comes great responsibility, right? And it's, <laughs> it's harder to figure out what to do with it. And I find that patients assume two things of us physicians. First, that we are up to date on all the medical publications relevant to their particular disease. And two, that we know how to apply this information to them. Yeah. Those, I mean, those would seem like reasonable assumptions, but unless you're kind of working in the, the healthcare space, <laughs> then it, it very quickly seems unreasonable. It, um, it would be superhuman to be able to do that. Um, so that's where evidence-based medicine enters. And one de- definition of EBM is, quote, the integration of of the best research evidence plus clinical expertise and patient values. So it's integrating those things together. And so the goal is to take the recent advances in medical research and practically apply them to be more safe, to be more effective, and uh, more cost-effective. And so it, it really boils down to, you know, taking all these studies in a certain area and trying to bring them down and say, okay, what, you know, if it's like, if the studies are like sap in a maple tree, what's the maple syrup that is distilled down to? Yeah, which studies tell us something that's relevant, which ones are more believable or better conducted, gives us better evidence. And for, for anybody who's likely taken a chance to Google their disease or their question, you'll find competing studies, things that say apparently exactly the opposite. And so it's it's very hard to distill all this stuff down, but that's what the thought process of evidence-based medicine tries to do. And the main complaints that we doctors will say against evidence-based medicine is that, oh, it's just cookbook medicine. Every patient gets treated the same way. Have you heard that, Andrew? I heard, I have heard that. And I mean, I think it's a valid 
a valid concern because everybody is unique and and the thing that I've I've learned just in caring for patients is that people's goals, values, and desires are different, even if they might fit the cl- the same clinical scenario. So there's definitely benefits to standardizing things to make sure that we don't miss something, you know. But at the same time, you have to be able to apply it to this person in the way that's going to be best for them or that they want it applied. And so I, I found another way to look at EB in the the literature, and it says it tries to uh, work with three basic principles. Number one, we want objective, clinically relevant information. So that's from certain types of studies. And the second thing is there's a hierarchy of evidence. So there are certain kinds of studies called randomized, controlled, uh, placebo-controlled, blinded studies. Okay, that's the highest level of evidence. And then there are lower levels of evidence all the way down to just reports of individual patients with a disease being treated. Or expert opinion. Oh, that's even lower. Yes, you can get lower still. (laughs) You can get just my opinion. Then then you can get internet websites. (laughs) That's right. right. And finally, the third principle after objective information, hierarchy of different levels of evidence, is to integrate three things. That scientific information with an individual physician's clinical judgment and, as Andrew said, the perceptions of patients as to the relevant importance of different interventions. And this came into my practice very uh, recently and showed how completely wrong I was about how I would think patients would perceive a certain treatment. And in my case, it was after removing cancers on the leg, between the knee and the ankle. Uh, I had learned about a way to repair these, but I thought, oh, this repair is so big, no one's going to want it. They'll just want to heal in. But when you tell a patient, well, it will take 10 to 12 weeks to heal on its own with a support stocking, or I can do this big thing called a keystone flap where I rearrange about, oh, six times the surface area of skin as the hole is. So far, one out of six potential patients to have this decided not to do the flap. The other five wanted the flap, and they've been very happy with it. So something I wasn't doing for years because I thought no patient would want it, I was almost completely wrong. Yeah, and, and you know, one of the things that I see a lot, even as simple as, treating high cholesterol, managing the burden of taking a medicine every day, maybe even if it has side effects, and depending on the age of the patient, their desires, and and how big of a burden it is to them to take a pill every day, you've got two people with the same cholesterol numbers, the same risk of a heart attack, they're going to choose different things. And so it's, it's our job to try and give them appropriate information and give them all their options and then see what's going to work best for them. Amen, Andrew. So, They have compared, Dr. Jürgen Nordenstrom says that evidence-based medicine is similar to detective work because in each case, you are presented with a case. Either the case for the detective or the case is the patient with a disease in need of treatment. He says, while the detective has a crime, a scene to examine, a perpetrator to find, and events to analyze. In medicine, we doctors have a patient instead of a crime, but the patient has symptoms who needs a diagnosis. And so both the detective and the physician have to exercise what's called backward reasoning to find cause and effect in what they see. And that's probably why, you know, it is so much fun when when you get to help patients and try and figure stuff out. And every once in a while, you get them right. Once in a while. (laughs) That's a major victory. Hopefully more often than not even. Exactly. I agree. And evidence-based medicine has four steps. And the first is formulate an answerable question like, you know, uh, who killed Mrs. Devers or what disease does Mr. Olson have? Uh, the second stage, and it's fire. So F is formulate an answerable question. The I in fire is the information search. So patients are doing this now like crazy on the, on the Internet. Well, we do it not only on the Internet, but with our memory, with our colleagues, uh, and through the patient's record. R is review of information and critical appraisal. So after we've searched for information, we see what information is relevant and how can we apply it to that patient. And then E, employ the results in your clinical practice distill that information down, present to the patient, and then with the patient, make a decision. You know, the way you describe that right there really highlights to me the dangers of Dr. Google because usually on Dr. Google, you'll start out or patients will come in with the answer. 
and then you'll have yes. to work back to the question and see <laughs> if you can find yes. the question that yes. lines up with this answer. And a, a lot of times Good it leads point. to frustrations because we are going about it backwards then. See, they've got the F and I of fire. They're formulating a question, what do I have? They're searching information, but they don't know how to review it, appraise it, and apply it. And so at least we still have a purpose. Well, that's that's the one benefit of clinical expertise and training is that, you know, if, if this is just your disease, you have an N of one. This is your case study. It's just yourself. Right. And, and the advantage of seeking clinical knowledge and expertise, something that doctors can do that computers really can't do as well, is that you can compare it to many other different people that you've seen with similar problems. And, and that patients can't. Well, as we get into uh, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, one of my favorite quotes from all the Sherlock movies, because I was an army doctor, is in the new one with Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman. Martin Freeman, as Dr. Watson, says to somebody, I am an army doctor, which means I can break every bone in your body while naming them. <laughs> I mean, that I, I, that I should have one. that posted somewhere. I have not done that to a patient, nor do I ever <laughs> intend to, but it is a skill set that I have. So Sherlock Holmes first appeared in A Study in Scarlet, well, sometime after 1881, because that's the year that Doyle graduated from medical school. And then he would end up writing 60 Sherlock Holmes stories, four of them uh, book length, 56 of them stories. And it's actually a myth. There, there's nowhere in Sherlock Holmes that he says, elementary, my dear Watson. Just like in Star Trek, Kirk never says, beam me up, Scotty. But <laughs> and on that irrelevant note, we'll go to our mystery trivia question of the day. It's not a medical trivia question today, but it's a mystery trivia question since we're dealing with mysteries today. And here we are. While bookshelves are crammed with mystery novels today, they didn't exist until someone invented the genre in 1847. Who was the creative author who did this with the release of the story Murders in the Rue Morgue, which was set in Paris? And it was printed for the first time in Philadelphia in a periodical called Graham's Magazine, which actually went out of business in 1858. So who was the creative author who invented the mystery novel, the detective mystery genre. We'll be back with our special guest, Dr. Barbara Golder, after the break. Welcome back to more on Dr. Doctor when we have our guest with us, Dr. Barbara Golder, who's going to enlighten us about the use of medicine in detective stories. Barbara is the editor of the Lineker Quarterly, which is the official medical journal of the Catholic Medical Association. She also is a writer of mystery stories herself, the Lady Doc Mysteries. She is a pathologist, and she is a lawyer. And although at the opening I said you also invented self-folding laundry, that's actually a myth. So It is a myth. It is a myth. <laughs> Welcome to, back to Dr. Doctor, Barbara. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I'd, I'd like to start out with my favorite deceased author, who is G.K. Chesterton. He loved detective stories. In fact, in one point, he said that he'd like to do nothing more than spend all his time writing detective stories, with the possible exception of spending all his time reading detective stories. <laughs> Why do you think people are so enthralled with detective mysteries, Barbara? I think there's something about the human person that likes solving puzzles, for starters. There's, there's something about mystery in that sense. That draws us in. But I think the other reason that murder mysteries, at least in the classical sense, appeal to people is because it's sort of the last great morality tale available ah. uh, where, you can, where you can see evil and good conflicting and, and come to some sort of resolution within time. Well, that's a good um, point, because may... can a relativist really write an interesting story? I have no idea. Um, <laughs> me, me either. <laughs> I, I really don't. You have to appeal um, to I something. A, I, but, I, but I think a relationalist can write a really interesting story because I think the other piece about the, the really good murder mysteries is that they give you not just some insight into a puzzle that has to be solved. That's just, you know, that's a puzzle. It's like a mathematical equation. But it gives you some insight into the human person and how people do things and why they do things. And that's why I think some of the some of the mystery series on television, particularly, 
have been uh, very successful, like the the uh, Murder She Wrote series. Mm-hmm. Jessica Flesher usually solved those not on the basis of great sleuthing, although she usually had some moment of epiphany, <laughs> but because she understood people's relationships to each other, and that helped her put the story and the the you know the clues and and the problem into the right kind of context. And I think the really good mysteries, the Father Brown mysteries, are like that. Oh, yes. The old, uh, it was a television series with uh, a priest and a nun in Chicago in, in like the 1980s. Uh, but a whole series of them. But I think they all sort of relate to how people connect to each other and, and what drives people to do what they do. And I think that's inherently interesting. Man, that's that makes me think of my, my favorite television detective series is Columbo. I don't know if you ever watched that I, one. I love Columbo. But there, mm. there is something about, you know, and that's one of the things that Sherlock Holmes really focused so much attention on was the attention to detail. It's the little details, right? The little details. You know, Barbara, with, with a career in law and pathology, I know your, your love for writing and skill for writing uh, and editing a medical journal, by the way. What, what drew you to, to medical mysteries in particular? Mysteries have always appealed to me. Even when I was a kid, I liked the mystery shows and, and mystery. So the idea has always appealed to me. I think inside people who get very passionate about reading, and I would almost rather read than eat. Not quite, but almost. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think there's this idea that I can do this. You know, I can write the great American novel or what have you. And, and so... If you read a lot and you absorb a lot of, of literary stuff, I, th- I think there's just this desire sort of grew in me to, to try my hand at it. And it worked. I mean, it, it just happened to work. I think my family, I just had my, my DNA done. You know, it was no big surprise. Mostly I'm Irish. And the Irish <laughs> are great storytellers. See, it's always been part of the family lore. It's always been how we relate to each other over the dinner table or around the fire or after dinner or what have you. Storytelling is is built into my family, to to my life, to my genes. So it it seemed kind of natural, even though it wasn't it wasn't a straight line. You know, I didn't I didn't do the English major thing or the creative writing <laughs> uh, training, any of that. It, it was kind of a circuitous route, but a, but a natural one. Barbara, in the beginning of the show, we introduced to listeners the concept of evidence based medicine. What do you think? that studying Sherlock Holmes mysteries and perhaps other medical mysteries can teach us about evidence-based medicine? Well, I think one of the things that it teaches you is you've got to put the evidence in context, and you have to make sure you have all the evidence. Uh, and I think one of the risks of our, our technologically driven medicine these days is that we don't always remember that there's important stuff that doesn't come off of a scan or, or out of a test tube, uh, that, that's very important. I, I'll give you an example. My, my husband was covering a practice for, for a physician, and a patient came in who had a, a rectal carcinoma. And it had been eight or ten weeks before that he'd gone in to see his doctor about blood in his stool. And the doctor said, young, young fellow, said, uh, okay, well, we'll get you a colonoscopy, but never did a rectal exam, and it was literally an anal carcinoma. Oh, my gosh. Wow. And missed it. So 10 weeks <clears throat> of delay and a very expensive test to do what a, a personal interaction would have Figured given information right for. So I think that, I think that's the piece that, that we have to remember, that there's pieces that we may not think about that can ultimately be very, very important. Well, there's a saying I recently read somewhere that brings that home. It's that everything that can be counted doesn't necessarily count, and everything that counts can't be counted. In other, can't be in other, yeah. So, well, Barbara, let's move on to some of Sherlock's sayings that might apply, and, and we'd like kind of your exegesis on <laughs> Sherlock's sayings. So here is one from The Adventure of the Speckled Band. He says, When a doctor does wrong, he is the first of criminals. He has nerve and he has knowledge. I, I think there's some truth to that, because we get used to holding people's lives in our hands. Uh, I remember reading um, a story about some climbers in in um, 
Everest. It was one of those first-person stories, and it talked about this guy who has these people, and they're in this huge blizzard, and he's responsible for their life, and one of them simply slips away from him, and it it devastates him, which which indeed it 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 was I mean it was going to do. Physicians sort of develop the ability to deal with that and push it away a little bit, so that they they do get very capable of handling things that would have would have stopped other people. So I think Sherlock Holmes is right about that. When doctors become criminals, and you know Dr. Crippen's a pretty good example, they become extraordinary criminals. You know, so particularly I, when they take particularly when they take to murder. Yes. It's interesting kind of as a side note, but I I always reflected on that, you know, just in trying to deal with patients and, you know, despite sometimes losing patients or suffering patients suffering bad outcomes, you know, the the natural human response is to take it very personally. But over time, I mean, you can't you can't do that because you can't go on to care for other patients and and I noticed in, in my first year of medical school, the first calendar year, I think we counted 187 tests uh, every two or three days. And, you know, just rapid fire, no, no time to, to rejoice or mourn <laughs> over anything. You have another patient to see. And uh, I, I found that was something that was very much a part of my training is that as soon as you're out of that room, you can't keep thinking about it. You got to go on to the next problem. But I think I think that is something that's kind of unique about physician training, and probably would lead to a bad <laughs> a bad criminal if they chose to be one. Yeah, well, or a good one, depending on your point of view. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there's another one uh, in the a scandal in Bohemia, where Holmes says to Watson, "You see, but you do not observe." Now, what what do you see in that? Well, I I, I think the story of uh, of the patient with the rectal carcinoma is is a pretty good example of that. You've got the information, but you're not putting it in the right kind of context because you're not making connections among things. Um, it, it's one thing to see a tree in front of you. It's another thing to put it into the context of where it is. How does it lean? Does this indicate that there have been winds? Is it healthy? Is it not healthy? And I think that. That became so automatic in doctors, I think, when we, when we spent most of our time diagnosing patients from their presence in front of us, that, that it became almost automatic. And I think in the days of Dr. Joseph Bell, who was Sherlock Holmes's mentor, it was, it was even more so because they didn't have the tests that we, even we mm -hmm. had when I was in medical school. Um, so you had to learn to look at things. I remember my, my, um, physical diagnosis professor talking about how much you could diagnose from a patient simply by taking his hand as you walked in the room to say hello. You know, was the hand warm or cold? Was it sweaty? Was there clubbing? Was there cyanosis? You know, what, what were the fingernails like? Was there an indication of anemia? All these things that came simply from touching a hand and, and really looking at it and paying attention to the details. You know, in dermatology, I learned, and no one taught me this, but I learned from experience that different kind of rashes and lesions feel different. And it bothers me to no end when patients say, oh, you're the first dermatologist I've seen who touched me. I'm like, what? I mean, every patient should be touched by their doctor, especially in dermatology. It, it's the difference between kind of active observation or active listening versus passive listening. True. You know, if you're, if you're there and you're with the patient and you're working towards an end, you see so many more things than if you're just there not working towards an end. You'd be liable to miss so much. Well, well and it depends on, on the end you're looking towards. If you're looking toward the end as the whole patient, that's at one end. If the end you're looking at is filling out this medical record over here, oh, it's a different thing. That is the Amen. truth. Uh, another Holmesian bit of wisdom. The temptation to form premature theories upon insufficient data is the bane of our profession. Oh, this is this is my song and dance these days. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot to unpack in that yeah. one. Holy, there even the is. whole world, we right? Ra we call it rash judgment in the Catholic Church. Well, it's like the reading um, from this weekend about the about the pro I think it was this weekend about the prodigal son, and there's the you know the 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 whole story and the second the the older son comes home and he he says to the father, you know your son has wasted his your money on prostitutes, you welcome him back. Well, the only person who mentions prostitutes in that story is the second son. Good point. 
Yes, you are right. So how does he how does he know that? He may know from other sources, or he just may be wrong in impugning <laughs> his brother. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And if he knows it from other sources, why didn't he help his brother? Which is another whole story altogether. But but no, I th- I think we do that, and we there's there's an evolutionary point to that. It helps keep us out of trouble, you know, keeps us from being eaten by lions, as it were. But when it comes to human relationships, or when it comes to solving the puzzle of a mystery, or when it comes to talking about even the mystery of God, it can get in the way. We have to be very cautious that we understand when we're doing it. Well, Barbara, we're going to have to cut to a quick break, but we have a lot more that we want to explore with you. This is Dr. Doctor coming to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. This is Dr. Doctor, the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association. We are here today with Dr. Barbara Golder, and we are discussing medical mysteries, especially related to Sherlock Holmes, who the, the author of Sherlock Holmes, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, was a physician. And there's a lot of medical background and thought processes in his writing. And so, Barbara, I, I wondered if you could tell us some of your favorite Holmesian medical mysteries. Are they true to life, or do you find them to be convoluted? Um, I think they're pretty true to life. Uh, they're, they're, they're literary, and so they're a little bit dramatic, but I think, um, I think they're, they're very interesting. The, the first one you've actually already alluded to, which was the story of the Speckled Band, which was one of the first ones I remember even reading. And if you're not familiar with the story, there's a, it's, a, it's basically a locked room mystery. Somebody dies with a couple of puncture wounds uh, visible on the body, and, and his gasp, last gasping words are, the band, it was the Speckled Band. Um and long story short, it turns out that this is a, a venomous snake, and and Holmes uh, figures it out. But but it, what I what I liked about it is the, it, it was one of those locked room mysteries where there was only so much you could figure out. And Holmes is very methodical about figuring out how this can happen. There are only a few things that can can cause someone to die very quickly, like that poisons among them. And uh, so it becomes a fairly straightforward thing to say in general, what happened, but then working backwards to figure out how this comes together. Holmes has to put together the the character, the man involved, uh, the murderer involved, and where he's been and what he's got access to, and how he could get something into and out of the room. And he puts together the the clues of a a low whistle and a a small plate of milk, which is is how the snake is is tempted in and out of the room. It's a fascinating piece. Now, I think it's probably overdrawn, but um, I remember reading one time that somebody was questioning whether or not a snake could go down a rope, which is involved in the story as well, and they were saying, oh, no, this never happened, and then about six months later, a letter appears in the the same mystery magazine. I I stand corrected. I was somewhere, and I saw the the snake... uh, slithering down a, a, a rope bell pull so <laughs> it can happen. <laughs> but that one's one of my favorites. The other one is um, is um, The Sign of the Four, where, and again, poison's involved. I think poison is sort of the, one of the natural things where he, he has to um, test, uh, test some pills that are left behind um, it's it's a revenge story, which a lot of a lot of mysteries revolve around. And there are two waxy pills, and he's, he's certain that one of them is causing is going to be. He's certain that it's going to cause death, so he gives it to a, a spaniel, half of it to a spaniel. Spaniel's fine. He thinks about it for me. He goes, oh, "Of course, there's going to be one that's that's okay and one that's not." Um, and so he cuts the other pill in half, and sure enough, that's the poison. Uh, again, figuring out. The human connection that's at work here is as important as figuring out what the medicine is. You know, again, fairly straightforward. That's something that will kill you quickly, um, and and with relatively few signs other than other than the death itself is going to be a poison. How do you get it there? Why would it be there? What did the person? What did the person intend? It's it's a wonderful it's a wonderful uh, story about the human heart that actually stretches from America all the way all the way to England. Barbara, in a lot of mysteries, and I've read a ton of the mysteries canon from, 
you know, 100 years ago or so, you know, the Agatha Christie, the Dorothy Sayers, mm-hmm. all of the Father Brown mysteries by G.K. Chesterton. In many of them, <clears throat> there's a, a coroner, a doctor saying, this person died between 8 and 10 hours ago, or they'll just look at the body and say, obviously he died of heart failure or stroke or this poison. Now, are the authors giving these doctors or coroners supernatural powers? Can they really be that accurate on the time and have that much of an idea of how they died just from looking at the corpse at the at the location of death? Well, some of that is showmanship, for sure, um, playing the odds and putting things together. I think cause of death is probably easier to do than time of death. The reality is time of death tends to be established by good detective work more than by um, examining a body, just because there's too too much variability in cooling and rigor mortis and all those things. You can get within a few hours, maybe, but but even at that, there, there are a lot of variables. So I think time to death is, is one of those um, where they stretch truth. But, but, ma- but cause of death, sometimes not. I mean, there, there are some things that are, that are fairly straightforward. In the, the, um, if you can smell it, the smell of bitter almonds. Uh, if, you, if you have someone who's, cherry, who's got cherry red uh, discoloration, the odds are carbon monoxide um, or, or something of that. Tell our audience what the almonds means. I'm sorry? Oh, the almonds. It's, um, I want to say strychnine, but it's not. It's, um... Is it cyanide? No, no, it it is strychnine, I think. It is? Isn't that awful? (laughs) Um, Well, look it up during the next break. (laughs) Look it up during the next break, yeah. Uh, Only because, but but it's a genetic thing. You can either smell it or you can't. Ah. Um, you, You either have the ability to smell it or you don't. Um, but anybody can see, presumably, um, cherry red uh, discoloration from carbon monoxide, that sort of thing. So sometimes sometimes it's pretty obvious. Sometimes it's just playing the odds. I remember once when I was a resident in, in um, pathology, we had this guy come in, like 35, 40 years old, found dead in bed, <clears throat> and big, husky, um, stocky sort of guy, and, and the chief resident and I were standing there, and he said, yeah, the cause of death is going to be in the head. And looked at this guy, and he's, he's built like a, a linebacker, and he's, you know, like almost no neck. Um, you know, big big shoulders and, and what have you. And I said, nah, cause of death is going to be in the neck. You wait and see. Um, and we, we were both playing the odds in terms of what we were looking at externally on this fellow. My sense was that He's young, probably isn't heart disease. I can't imagine other than, you know, it could be an aneurysm. But beyond that, there's got to be something going on in the neck because he's kind of cyanotic and there are a couple of petechiae in his, in his eyes. Well, it turns out he had epiglottitis. Oh, man. <laughs> but, blocked his airway. Um, <laughs> blocked his airway and it's essentially died of asphyxia. But it, those are sort of the playing the odd showmanship sort of thing. Now, if you're doing it in a murder mystery, you you can stack you can stack the deck, um, and do it legitimately. Now, Barbara, can can you relate personally to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who gave up his medical career to devote his life to literature? Um, gee, I wish I could, because he was very famous and successful. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're editing a journal, yeah, and you're writing mystery books, and I am writing mystery books. But no, I mean, I I I think yeah, because you have a foot in both worlds and he ended up not only doing that but he was also instrumental in um in a fairly famous trial in britain because of his ability to 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 look at evidence and and eventually got a a man who was falsely accused of murder exonerated um so i think that's kind of a cool thing yes um yeah i i I think there's just this hunger that you got to feed if you're going to write you're going to write because you can't not write and i think that's what happened to him and it's certainly what happened to me. Barbara, when I've read some of these old, you know, 19th century, early 20th century setting mystery stories, there are a lot of terms used that we don't use now. Maybe you could do a little primer. Like some of the terms are consumption, laudanum, and, and other terms. Can you tell us what some of those are and what they mean? Well, consumption was the old term for tuberculosis, but it probably also included other pulmonary um diseases that were ongoing and might might have included for example sarcoidosis 
something mm. like that. But generally, consumption was considered to be um, tuberculosis. Laudanum was an opiate, uh, sort of the uh, it is uh, sort of the, um, the the original opioid medication. And were there other um, terms for opioids, you no know, narcotics besides laudanum? Oh well, they used the term opium itself. There were opium True. eaters and opium smokers, and opium dens. So they, so they used opium dens. They used those sorts of terms. Um, there are a lot of odd terms. Like, and we had in even in pathology, uh, they, there was a term for uh, concussion that was called cerebral commotion, <laughs> which, 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 which I find an absolutely marvelous term because it sort of explains what's going on. Yes. If you've ever dealt with somebody who's post-concussive, they're just not quite all there. No. <laughs> and, and, um, and the commotion in the brain is the reason. So uh, there are all, all kinds of things like that. Occasionally, you'll, you'll actually have, I even will have to go uh, look up a term because, because it's so archaic. And we did look it up. It was um, cyanide. It is cyanide. It is cyanide. Yeah. Bitter almonds. Bitter almonds. Well, you told me that besides Doyle, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, your other muse for writing mystery stories was a journalist, not a medical person, named Burton Ruscha. Tell us about him. Well, it's kind of funny. I got to know, I actually started reading Burton Ruscha um, again long, long ago, but in my in my spiritual journey, I got to know a fella who was an, an army colonel who actually had trained spies for the CIA. He was he was an in, incredible guy, um, very distinguished. Looked like one of those great British colonels, you know, tall yes. and lanky, kind of angular face, and he could cross his legs and put both feet on the floor. I mean, he was just an interesting guy. And his name, <laughs> his name was Mossman Ruscha, and he was Burton's brother. Um, and he is an Anglican um, Episcopalian, very devout, probably the, the first spiritual mentor I had. And he loved to read and write and discuss all of these wonderful ideas and thoughts. And so I, I connected back to Burton Ruscha through, through his brother. But Burton was um, a journalist who got interested in, but basically epidemiology and infectious disease in, in that regard, and wrote a column for The New Yorker for years and years and years on it, and then put these together in, in a couple of different books called The Medical Detectives. And they're just wonderful stories, again, about paying attention and solving the mystery of how Something came to be usually an, a, 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 an outbreak or uh, an epidemic. I remember one of them was about an epidemic of a small outbreak of um, uh, trichinosis in a German community, and they were trying to figure out where it came from. And as it turns out, it was it was uh, pork that was brought to like a church. Uh, function and they made sausage out of it, and the sausage went to everybody in the parish, oh, and so goodness. the whole parish got trichin- uh, the whole parish got trichinosis. But but the but putting together the A to B to C to D to E to how all this happens is is fascinating, and he did it in a in a very engaging storytelling sort of way. It was again, it was the it was how these things came to be because of the connections between people because this guy had raised the pig and he donated the pig to this guy who you know and and how how it goes from the farm to uh to to the table essentially and then it doesn't get cooked enough and so trichinosis results it was fascinating stuff and uh so i i think that between sherlock and and burton ruche i developed this this sense of relationship and connection and how the greater story always is almost as interesting, sometimes more interesting than just the little, well, somebody got contaminated pork and and got sick from it. And this book is called The Medical Detectives, was written in 1991, 432 pages long, all true stories. And I remember sometime back in medical school or before, there was another book like that. I can't remember who it was, but it was a guy who was actually a coprologist. (laughs) (laughs) And he solved all these mysteries. And a coprologist is someone who examines feces. And I don't know if that rings a bell with you, but it was actually a fascinating book, believe it or not. But we're going to have to come back. We'll finish the interview with Barbara after the break here on Dr. Doctor.
And we're back with Dr. Doctor and the answer to the trivia question. And today's trivia question is a mystery trivia question, not a medical trivia question. Remember that I told you at the beginning that the mystery novel genre did not exist until someone invented it in 1841. So the question is, who was the creative author who did this with the release of the story Murders in the Rue Morgue, set in Paris? I, I was surprised that we've made it that long throughout history without having detective murder novels. You yeah, know, it's such a big part of of literature today. It, it absolutely is. And I remember reading it in high school. And many of you may remember it also. It was actually an American author who first wrote a detective mystery, and it was Edgar Allan Poe, who would go on to write other mysteries, The Purloined Letter and The Gold Bug, and, and then other authors would uh, soon follow. So Edgar Allan Poe gave us this luscious, delightful genre of mystery stories for those cold, rainy, and snowy days. And now, back to our resident guest mystery writer, Barbara Golder. Barbara, I just finished a book on tape, The Coddling of the American Mind. And in it, the authors describe an alarming trend in our society, especially on college campuses, that there's a lack of civil discourse because people who disagree with each other often just shout at each other instead of really discuss things. Do you think that reading detective stories can help one to develop critical thinking skills and the intellectual humility necessary to have such discussions with people who disagree with them? I'd sure like to think so, because I think that critical thinking is an essential part of writing a mystery. Um, so you're going to absorb some of that by reading a mystery. But I think that, again, and I, I come back to the relational piece, the, the bigger piece is the mystery gives you the opportunity to see people in different ways if the writer's very skilled with it. Uh, another one of my favorite writers, a guy named Ian Rankin, whose old Inspector Rebus mysteries connect very much on the human level about why people do things and, and how people see things differently. And I think that's really important in, in social discourse. If we, can't, if we can't get inside the head of someone who's different than we are, even a little bit, or if we can't at least respect that they may come from a different position, then we're not going to be able to, to go forward together and we're going to, as you say, end up just shouting at each other. And I think that's a problem not just on college campuses, it's a problem in the workplace, sure. it's a problem in the church. It's kind of a, a, lost, a lost appeal to reason and logic. You know, but that is something that's highlighted, especially in detective mystery. So I'd, I'd like to think so. And the other part that G.K. Chesterton commented on is that reading a detective mystery, you know, that aha moment, it's a moment of intellectual humility. And it's almost like I'm glad I didn't know and I'm glad I do see now. And I think all of us need more intellectual humility. Well, exactly. And I and I think it's good when the aha moment comes, aha, I was wrong. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. That's something that you don't get a lot of feedback in that regard on Facebook or on news media or in your daily life. But that's the moment of joy in reading a mystery story. Yes, exactly. that's the truth. Well, you know, Barbara, I, I was wondering if there's any particular stories you would recommend to future doctors, nurses, other medical professionals um, especially people who like to, to increase their love of medicine and the mystery of medicine. Well, I, I think we've, we've covered two of, the, two of the great ones, obviously, right here, um, Holmes and, and Ruscha. Um, I mentioned Ian Rankin. He doesn't deal so much with the medical perspective, but he does from the social perspective, at least his, his Inspector Rebus novels do. Um, a lot of what drives that is the relationship between people and how he figures out how to connect with them, which is a skill doctors are supposed to have. We're supposed to be able to connect with people who come from very different walks of life and understand how that affects their illness. You know, a, a PhD scientist is going to have a very different capability and way and manner of understanding his illness than, than somebody who has a grade school education, and we need to be able to deal with that. So I think Rankin can sort of help help with that, particularly because he, he deals with um, folks on a very broad and sometimes very gritty 
um, part of, of, of life in, in Scotland, which is where the books are, are placed. Um, I just, I've just finished, this is like the guilty pleasure of all time, and I can't believe I'm about to say this. I have just finished, <laughs> I have just finished a 12, it's going to be 13 volumes shortly, series by a, a writer named Reese Bowen, R-H-Y-S Bowen, and they're the um, Lady Georgiana Mysteries, and they're Man, these are these are chick books. I, <laughs> I fully admit this. They are chick lit. It's, it's, it's Edwardian romance. I mean, one of the characters that keeps going through this Lady Georgiana is thirty fifth in line to the throne, and she's a cousin <laughs> cousin to the Prince of Wales, who is dallying around with Wallacons. And I mean, this is like this is like the the Downton Abbey sort of background. Um, but again. The interesting thing is she's moving between different sections of life. She's she's the poor relation, um, and the the stories are again de- dealing with relationships and how they affect people and cause them to do sometimes noble, sometimes awful things, and and how that's really important to solving uh, the particular problem at hand, which may or may not be who killed this person in front of you. Um, they're, they're, I've, I've had a, a good, they don't require a whole lot of, of brain power cause, because they're just ones that carry you along for fun. Uh, but they are fun, but they, but they actually have some very interesting parts to them. And one of them is that Georgiana wants to marry an Irish peer who's as poor as she is. She's, of course, Church of England. He's Catholic. they got to work that out. So if you want a, a, a murder mystery series that actually has some, some Catholic dynamics in it, in a different sort of way, it's a good series. Well, and Barbara, you were very humble, but we we would like to recommend also the Lady Doc series, and we we well, wanted to touch that. on that as well. So you you are a mystery writer yourself. You've written the Lady Doc series. I know with with your background, you've you've had a lot of experience both in the medicine, the legal background, and one of the things I wanted to ask especially about was the Ten Commandments of the Detection Club. If, if you follow these Ten Commandments in your writing, and uh, do you abide by the oath that they took? Are you familiar with the Detection Club? I'm familiar with them, and, I'm, and, I'm, and like everybody else, um, those, those rules are honored as much in the breach as they are in the observance. Um, <laughs> and, the, and for our audience, the Detection Club was formed in the 1920s by classic British mystery writers, and G.K. Chesterton was the first president, but the oath was written by Dorothy Sayers of the Lord Peter mm-hmm. Whimsey stories, and the oath goes like this. Do you promise that your detectives shall well and truly detect the crimes presented to them using those wits which it may please you to bestow upon them and not placing reliance on nor making use of divine revelation, feminine intuition, mumbo-jumbo, jiggery-pokery, coincidence, or act of God? <laughs> so what do you think of that, yeah. Barbara? Well, I, I, I think that's, that's a pretty good rule of life, except for the feminine intuition thing. Of course not. There's a scene in one of my books where it doesn't help solve the mystery, but it helps keep somebody out of trouble with feminine intuition that something's going wrong. I think that's important because I think one of the things that relates to is a lot of what we know we, we can't articulate. It, it happens at an emotional level. And I yes. think that's fair play. Um, I know that in the in the Ten Commandments, there's the I think the first one maybe uh, you can't um, the murderer has to be somebody who whose mind you haven't gotten into. Yes, you can't uh, see the thoughts of the the you, criminal. You can't see the thoughts of the criminal, which is well, you know which I violate from almost page one <laughs> in my first book because <laughs> because the, because the criminal wanders through this and you hear. You hear some things going on, so that again you understand what's going on, and ultimately, I hope at the end they, they come together. Um, but I'm in good company because the murder of Roger Ackroyd does the same thing. I was just going to say that's the one of the Agatha Christie ones, and I was totally snowed when I read that book for the first time. It's yeah. like what? So yeah, so the the guy narrating it <laughs> is the. Is the murder spoiler alert? Exactly. <laughs> yes. Well, and Col- and Columbo did the same thing. Columbo That's true. Columbo definitely did because you you knew exactly who had done it and kind of why they'd done it. And so the interesting part was watching Columbo work through it. 
So I think that we've we've developed a little beyond the classical tradition in that we've we've broadened the perspective of mysteries. But I think the rest of it, it, it it's very good. It's very fair play. It has to be something that engages the reader enough that he feels like he has a fair shot of actually figuring it out. Whether he does or not, that's another story. So, Barbara, in the last uh, 30 seconds or so, how do listeners get your books? What are they called, and how many of them are there so far? There are two so far. A third one is in the works. They're called the Lady Doc Mysteries. The first one is Dying for Revenge. The second one is Dying for Compassion. And they're available through Amazon and also, I think, probably Barnes & Noble online, but also through my publisher, which is Full Quiver Press, and you can Google that um, to to get copies of it. And I already know that there's been a book club of some of the uh, female part of the Catholic Medical Association who absolutely loves your books, and I heard you actually attended one of their meetings virtually. Exactly, and I'm, I'm going to be doing another book club in Chattanooga on Friday. I love doing book clubs because... People see things in my books that I don't know are there. So if anybody out there there does a book club and wants me to Skype in or call in, I'm delighted. I love that. Barbara, thanks for being with us again. And thank you to all our listeners for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Radio Association. The podcast is available on iTunes and Google Play, brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. Be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor, where we will be discussing with attorney Lewis Brown what the American healthcare system might look like if it followed Catholic principles of social justice. This is Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at RedeemerRadio.com doctor. And tune in for Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio every Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1 or find new episodes at RedeemerRadio.com doctor.